So my name's Dan Nichols. This is a MACP podcast. I'm pleased to be joined with uh, by Dr. Jane Simmons, and today we're going to talk about uh, hypermobility spectrum disorders, which is an area that uh, Jane's uh, widely published in. Um, firstly, thank you, Jane, for talking on the podcast today. Great. Well, thank you, Dan. I'm really delighted to be able to come and talk to listeners about the hypermobility spectrum disorders um, and just really um, just bringing to mind that in the last 10 years there's been uh, a, an increase in uh, clinical interest but also in the published literature. So um, I hope the listeners will find it interesting. Perfect. Um, could we start off, um, could you um, introduce yourself to the listeners who don't, uh, don't already uh, know you and aren't yet familiar with your work? Okay, so... Um, Jane Simmons, originally uh, trained in Australia, in Western Australia, at Curtin University, where um, I uh, had come in with a degree in physical education, and that's where my interest first started in performance and hypermobility, working with dancers, working with athletes, recognising that there were a group of people who, uh, where hypermobility was an asset, um, and potentially an area where it might be problematic. Um, and then I uh, continued my training, did my postgraduate training, I've become a member of the MACP, moved to the UK um, and continued on uh, in the teaching world uh, and research and in, uh, in a clinical setting. Uh, my doctorate studies um, focused on hypermobility, particularly in the adolescent group working with phys physical education teachers. So since then I've been working with Professor Rodney Graham, who I suppose is thought of the sort of grandfather of this area, Dr Alan Hakim. Uh, Dr. Hannah Kazkas, who are leaders in this area in this country, and I currently chair the International um, Physiotherapy Guidelines Group, um, of which we've just um, we've just managed to publish our international guidelines. So, um, so I work at the University College London as a senior teaching fellow on the clinical lead in the hypermobility unit. Before we talk about the uh, the guidelines, can we? You might be aware that I use the terminology hypermobility spectrum disorders. Is that the current uh, terminology, because I know there's been a, some evolution of, of that, if you could add some clarity. Yeah. So in the, in the past um, month, there has been the publication in the American Journal of Medical Genetics, Part C, if readers want to go and look that up, a series of articles where uh, the International Consortium for Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome have come together um, to help to clarify terminology, because there's been a range of different terminologies used over the years. We've had um, terms such as generalised joint hypermobility, hypermobility, hypermobility syndrome, um, we've had benign joint hypermobility syndrome, we've had hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos type, we've had Ehlers-Danlos hypermobility type and we've had Ehlers-Danlos type 3 um, and that's caused quite a lot of confusion for clinicians um, and it's also caused quite a lot of confusion for our patient groups. So the consortium have come together to, to, to um, try and agree, and have agreed, um, a framework. And so there is an article in that, um, in that publication which readers may want to go and have a look at. Um, but what I'll say to you is that if we think about hypermobility as being a spectrum from, very, from being very much a normal tray um, through to something that may have a is is more uh, genetic mutation and pathology. We work from people who may have a single hypermobile joint. It may be congenital or it may be acquired, um, through to people who have generalised joint hypermobility, alongside other signs, 
um, of connective tissue laxity. For example, in the skin is the most obvious. So we might see stretch marks um, that aren't just a standard stretch mark. They're actually, you start to see the, more the fragility that appears. Um, you might just see laxity on the back of the hands, on the back of the elbows. You might be familiar with um, the, the um, face pullers, the contortionists. So those people would be moving much more to what we call hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos type. Um, and those who don't meet that criteria, which includes other, um, other signs such as hernias, aortic root dilatation, potentially they may have mitral valve prolapses. So you can see this is a much more uh, a sign of a, a hereditary connective tissue disorder. Uh, to those who are moving back uh, to the left of the spectrum, if you like, who have perhaps generalised joint hypermobility, a, a peripheral joint hypermobility, a single joint, or they may be historically. Um, and uh, we call all of that spectrum the hypermobility spectrum disorders, some of which have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos type, and some of which may have um, a hypermobility spectrum disorder either being generalised, peripheral or historical. Right, so we will... Um We'll obviously copy links to, to the article that you mentioned. Flowing on from there, so with this, with this um, hypermobility spectrum of disorders, mm -hmm. has it become a, a wider terminology? Who do you feel is best placed to, to make this diagnosis? So um, myself, so in an, in an outpatient's environment, it, looking beyond a general joint hypermobility and, and of, often uh, people who are familiar with the, the Baton scale, um, but looking beyond that, who's best to make the diagnosis? Okay. You there? So as physiotherapists, as frontline practitioners, um, we will be in a position, or we certainly will be making an assessment, um, and initially, um, depending on the presentation, we may um, be, um, we may, our index of suspicion may be raised if someone comes in with subluxating patellae or uh, subluxating shoulders, which should alert you to look around the body. Um, so you might find there that you see the generalised joint hypermobility. My point to you would be then to have a look at the skin on the back of the hands, have a look around at the scars to see if they are thinner. If you start to then think, hmm, and also uh, there's uh, perhaps even a, a family history that you explore, then I think at that point um, to make a diagnosis of something like hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, you would be wanting to be working with the rheumatologist would probably be the first place to look for because they could then go in um, and potentially differentiate this hypermobile generalised joint hypermobility to something that's more a her hereditary connective tissue disorder. Bearing in mind, we have to recognise that some may even have the more rare types like vascular type, um, they may have something like Marfan syndrome, all of those things you would want to do with your rheumatologist or a specially trained ESP um, physiotherapist. So reinforcing the importance of a good relationship with, with the rheumatology yeah. department to make a clearer pathway for these patients. Yeah. And on that note, what, uh, what do you feel currently physios uh, do well? Um, and extending on from that, what, what should we do better at? Okay, so I think um, what we do really well is um, we're excellent at assessing movement um, and we're detailed in the quality of movement. So I think most of the listeners will be um, aware of the bait and scale and of course that's a very sort of um, on or off, you know, yes or no dichotomous type of assessment and really it was designed not as a, as a clinical tool, it was an epidemiological tool um, for, you know, 
Peter Baton to go and explore how many people were hypermobile in Africa. Um, it's been, it actually is quite a reliable tool. Um, and actually, there is another paper in that journal that I'm talking about yeah. in the uh, American Journal of Medical Genetics, which actually looks at the various cutoffs. Um, so what we do well, I think, is go beyond the baton and look at how people move and decide whether that additional movement that they might have is actually a part of the problem because it, not, it might not be. It might actually be they move very well and actually it's an asset for them. Yeah. So it's about assessing the control of movement. So I think we're very, very good um, at that. I think it's about putting together the pieces of the puzzle. Um, um, if we think about perhaps in our research findings that actually there are proprioceptive deficits um, in these in these people particularly if they're very lax or if there's pain associated um, and actually they're also very weak um, and the feedback from the patients so we're listening to the patient group is that we have been um, accused of just looking at a single joint yeah. and perhaps as musculoskeletal specialists we want to just go in and hone in on the on the on the main joint or well, that might be how our referral said well actually what we've got to look is a li little bit more holistically and look holistically at how people move decide on what the priorities are so it may be that we've got to do some work on pain management and preparing people um, it might be that we've got to do some work on just some movement correction um, and we will need to be helping people to be stronger and more robust. So a lot of our cognitive and functional approaches are going to be really important. So I think that's where we need to develop and take things slowly and work with the patients. Excellent. Um, what, what are, uh, in your experience, what, what additional challenges are there in managing this, this population? So just reflecting on my own practice, um, I try and focus on um, making aware these patients are aware of what they can do because there's quite a, a focus on what they can't do, which is perhaps coming from parents, school, in adolescence, or, or they put on themselves because the, mm. it's triggering off pain, therefore I'm coming out of um, out of uh, PE and those sort of classes that we want them engaging in. And my, my personal uh, concern about that environment is are we, are we creating fear avoidance in people for the future? Are we, are we installing actually a sense of fragility in these patients when we want to be focusing on what they can do? Yeah. Personally, I, try, I work with a group of swimmers and I try and tackle that by spinning it around and making them aware of the, uh, the advantages of um, hypermobility spectrum disorders. For example, in swimming swimmers, um, more distance per stroke, mm. with um, better range of motion through the shoulder, um, more efficient kickoff of the wall mm. when they've got hyperextension mm. of the knee, they can be, have a propulsive phase on both the knee mm. extension and flexion. So in our elite swimmers, we are mm. seeing that the majority of them ha uh, are under that um, population. But what challenges, either expanding on that or, or what other challenges do you uh, face in your experience? Okay, so I think you make a really good point. I mean, there are advantages of being hypermobile. And as I said, I think you have to see this as being something that's within a normal spectrum through to something that's outside the spectrum. And you'll be deciding on those things as you examine the patients and look beyond the joints into the, into the other connective tissue. So I think um, the challenges can be um, if, um, as we do find, some of the, the patient population have a look on the internet and they find that there are people in wheelchairs or people using crutches. Um, and often those who suffer the most are more verbal. Um, and yet when we look at um, elite groups of athletes, like in swimming, um, like in football, uh, 
in raw, at the Royal Ballet <clears throat> and in netball even, we found higher percentage of people who are hypermobile. And of course, you've got an extra reach in netball. Um, you can, you're much, if you're agile, you've got a, a, a greater span that you can step. As you've said, in swimming, really important. I think the key thing is, um, is that people who are in pain um, and who are suffering a lot um, do find it difficult when someone says, oh, but it can be an advantage. Um, and so it's not to minimise their suffering. Um, however, I think those uh, who are working in a sporting population, I think it's great then to focus on where this can be an advantage and drill down um, that the key thing for them is that they need to, they're going to need to maintain control of their hypermobile range and they're going to need to have good strength um, and they're at their hypermobile range and if they get injured they're going to need to work hard to get back at that so I think it's about seeing it can be advantageous particularly in sport um, and that their prehab and their activation and all those kind of proprioceptive deficits need to be tackled in the in the more severely affected I think it's really then how we manage our communications and I absolutely agree with you we don't want to be bringing people to be fear avoidant it is focusing on what they can do and that kind of small steps um, small small steps towards what their goals are um, so that actually we give them hope because actually for some they do look down the tunnel um, and necessary and do sometimes think that they're they're on the road to you know a tertiary rehab center when in actual fact um, they can do very well um, with a good functional and cognitive approach. So when this, uh, when a diagnosis has been made, and we, we have a patient in front of us in a clinic who's um, presenting with hypermobility spectrum disorders, how, uh, how does uh, how do our listeners um, gauge the appropriate rehab mm. uh, intensity? So if you could talk about what what the what the evidence is showing us for what types of rehab, but also mm. how we how we gauge that rehab, uh, as in there's there's a fine balance mm. between. What we're trying to encourage is tissue adaptation, um, and and an exacerbation of pain in this population is what we want to try and avoid, especially where there's peripheral and central sensitisation is is observed in this population, mm-hmm. which um, can create a, a sense of yeah. failure and also a disengagement of physiotherapy. If it's yeah. oh, it's another physio who's I'm now in pain every time I go and see yeah. them, it, it affects their their journey that they're on. Yeah, no, a really good question, um, and I suppose the approach that 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 we take um, we take, and I think the international group that I work with would agree on this as well. There is a kind of um, stratification. Um, so sometimes you might see people in the early stages after an acute. Um, exacerbation. They may have been asymptomatic and become symptomatic through uh, a subluxation of the patella would be the most common, um, or the or the shoulder, or rolled their ankles. In which case, you've picked up, uh, you've had a look wider, um, and you've recognised that there's generalised joint hypermobility. So in those in that sort of first stratification, I think our um, you know standard approaches to therapy work really well. So we might be using you know the you know using ice manual therapies. Uh, um, a rehabilitation approach. They haven't necessarily got to the stage where they've got a peripheral sensitization or central sensitization. It's with um, poor rehab, um, I would say, and that uh, I put that to the therapist, but also to the to the patient group themselves. Actually, that actually they do need to rehabilitate themselves well. Otherwise, they do become a revolving um, patient group and re-entering more at the next level along. So on that kind of intermediate level, where 
Um, and I think Carol Clark was the, the first person to really identify this in her in her study, um, which again readers can can look up. So that's Carol Clark who did a study in in Oman, and she found that um, that around about sixty percent of returners into the outpatient department um, were people who 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 met the criteria for hypermobility syndrome. So what I'd say to you there is when you start to see that level, that's when you start to be seeing um, signs of um, more potentially even uh, some peripheral um, small fibre neuropathy. Um, there may be some peripheral sensitisation. There are some behavioural issues, sometimes around fear avoidance. Um, and at that point... Um, <clears throat> This is where we do take on a very functional and cognitive approach. Um, so very much prioritising the problems, dealing with the problems which are often around pain, fatigue, um, instability, and often very they're often very weak. So um, we'll start, as I spoke about before, looking at uh, functional movement correction, um, but also looking to strengthen people up. And anecdotally, People find things like Pilates, they find hydrotherapy, aquatic therapy very helpful in those early stages. And then our evidence, which we have, um, which we have in, in this current journal article, um, is that a um, graduated strengthening approach on the basis of the American College of Sports Medicine approach to strengthening mm. through range, so not to stop at um, what where we'd like to perhaps stop people, but actually they need to have control of their hypermobile range. So Verity Pacey did a very nice study um, looking at the difference between those who kind of stopped it, stopped it neutral um, and those who, who worked into the hypermobile range. And the interesting thing there was um, both groups actually improved in terms of pain um, but actually and strength, but actually those who are exercising through their hypermobile range do a lot better um, from an emotional point of view. That was in children, um, and I think we need to think about how that translates to adults. There's another uh, a, a paper by Sayin, uh, Sayin that actually shows uh, the effect of proprioceptive training. Um, um, and also we have the work of Ferrell, um, the Glaswegian group, who also looked at a proprioceptive and strengthening approach. I think the key here is to pace it, to monitor the pain, um, to some degree without it becoming an obsession um, to, rec to help teach people about different types of pain so that actually they know um, when it's a training pain and when actually they're actually having a flare how to manage their flare-ups and to become a bit more resilient about that so that's the approach that we take for that kind of intermediate group that most of us will be seeing there is then another group um, who are much, much more complicated, um, and you may find them developing other comorbidities, such as postural orthostatic tachycardia or some kind of orth orthostatic intolerance. Um, they may be in that intermediate group, but perhaps not to the degree where they require um, a, a cardiac um, assessment. Um, and also the gut is the other area that can be impacted upon as well. So you often get a slow transit gut with hypermobility. And again, um, there's some nice papers if you if your readers want to explore the work of uh, Kazim Aziz and his group uh, who are at the London. They've produced some very good papers for the gastrointestinal team. Um, so slow transit is quite a big problem. Um, so when it gets to that multi-systemic and often with psychopathology, um, that's when we're looking at um, a referral to the tertiary centres. Um, in children, um, uh, Great Ormond Street uh, is Great Ormond Street Hospital has a tertiary centre. Uh, the Evelina uh, will take children as well who've got um, 
uh, chronic, certainly the chronic pain involvement. Um, and for adults, uh, it's really uh, UCLH uh, with Dr. Hannah Kaz-Kaz or up to Stanmore where they have an inpatient um, uh, long-term rehab centre who's that's headed up by Roger Woolman and um, Dr. Helen Cohen. Um, on reflection of my own practice, yeah. I'll, I'll reinforce what you're saying. Yeah. The, the, um, I find that this patient group, uh, perhaps in the, the not the um, not the severe group, but the the, um, the step down from that, yeah. respond really well to hydrotherapy, and I, yeah. that it, um, perhaps because of that confidence to exercise through range yes. also the the feedback of the water so they get a more proprioceptive input that is can be quite a nice yeah. environment for them to yeah. uh, rehab it and that takes takes us back to the point you made earlier isn't it what can they do yes and actually that will be you know it's a great step when you can say well actually you now if we take to the water and a lot of people do say it's about feeling safe um when they have got fear avoidance you know it's hard to take people back down the step unless you can put them in an environment like that so clearly there's about access to services um, but that certainly is an area that we're looking to explore with in some of our research going forward excellent for for, for these patients that aren't in uh, engaged in hydrotherapy program you, yep. you mentioned that um about the, the grading of the exercise yes. and, and and understand that limitations do yep. you have advice for listeners of, of uh, something that could be slightly prescriptive with this population for example pain that uh, is uh, three out of ten on a vast scale or below and and then mm. any discomfort is reduced back to normal resting levels within 24 hours yeah. do you have a, a guideline so so i guess i guess this is very much about clinical decision making um and how you build your relationship with your with your patient and getting the confidence and them getting the confidence to be able to work um within those ranges i think the thing is is that some of these people have um uh, they do often come with uh, a chronic with chronic pain um so they'll tell you if you do a vas scale with them that they're sitting on somewhere between four and eight yeah. sometimes more um so at this point i think our guidance um and certainly the guidance that rose mckeer and i have written about is um to keep people in a zone so we'll teach them to try and stay in the zone so if their pain is sitting around four to five um, actually we don't want to exacerbate that pain but we can allow it to go to a certain level and then they'll learn how to um, learn about their irritability as well um, and also as I said you can teach them um, you know to pace that exercise I mean the key thing here is that you know those people who are listening I'm sure will agree that they'll see that people move very quickly often when they're hypermobile they they actually sort of dart in and out of movement so it's teaching them to work through and actually by giving them you know often the this is why I think they're like the Pilates you know initially it's often in a reclined position um, they feel stable and supported they can get some kind of stability um, we'll use the gym balls as well those who like hydrotherapy and do well there often do really well with the gym balls as yeah. well giving some kind of proprioceptive feedback um, on on that and so it is about keeping people in a zone they feel comfortable with and gradually getting the confidence to move move further yeah so so your advice to listeners would be to not have a, a, a prescriptive measure but maybe engage in that conversation um, with patients as to what what is their tolerable tolerable level what 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 is when they know they've reached the top of that threshold and and, and the bottom of the threshold where they're not being challenged and then work within their range which is individual yes. to the patient yeah. rather than a blanket yeah okay yeah. um so you mentioned there about um listeners 
raising their index of suspicion towards a diagnosis with um, with uh, movement impairments or gastrointestinal problems. Yeah. What to to on that same note, what should clinicians um, uh, be aware of that patients might say um, that might guide might increase their index of suspicion? Okay, so um, I suppose what we're looking at, as I said, is if people talk about recurrent. <laughs> Recurrent subluxations, recurrently rolling over. If you go back into their family history, what were they like developmentally? Were they late to late to walk? Um, did they have a lot of fatigue? Often that's a that's a uh, something that raises a level of suspicion. And then I think you want to start looking around, feeling the skin, mm. looking at the other joints. So if the skin's very loose, and then you start to look, ask about bruising. Um, often you'll see small bruises um, that have you know. That don't equal the amount of impact that they've had so um, so that would be another sign of some kind of tissue fragility and then I think what you start you need to start to think of is um, as I said is there been an, a family history uh, and it and I think you also need to ask in the history have there been any instances of um, sudden deaths if you're really going down that route yeah. um, so uh, and that's really when you start thinking about something like Marfan syndrome um, because that, they're the other differentials that you need to think about. Um, but if we're thinking about families and parents bringing their children to see you um, because their children are have a struggling at school, I think then um, it might be more around um, asking them a little bit more about well, what are the issues at school. And often there are issues around handwriting, yeah. um, and then you can ask them to, you know, Look at the way they hold their pen and you can see those hyperextending fingers. Um, and we use our hand therapists a lot um, to help there with potentially some, some adaptations. It might be just about different pens, but it also might be about strengthening up the hands. Um, we in our clinic encourage the use of getting children out doing climbing um, as a good whole body work, but also involving the hands. And that's fun for children, they don't feel like they're so different. Um, but they're the sorts of things. So potentially handwriting, participation in PEs and other ones, you yeah. find them actually not participating fully. Um, and of course we want them to be participating. So it might be then around how we kind of work with PE teachers um, to help break down tasks. It might be just about slowing things down a little bit in order for, for them to, to um, understand. I will just make a point now mm. because it's quite an important one for children. Is There's quite a big overlap with developmental coordination disorder. Um, between hypermobility and uh, generalised joint hypermobility and DCD, um, it's probably around a 40 to 50 percent, which actually may persist into adulthood. Um, and the issue around the DCD is that actually it might not just be hypermobility is a problem. Actually, it's their whole motor planning. Yeah. Um, and again, you want to be working with a paediatrician then to tease those things out. And the occupational therapy therapists are also very helpful um, in understanding that. And that comes up with things like how they dress. Um, do they struggle, you know, organising themselves to get to put their stuff in their bag? Um, so it, it, it's, it's a crossover then that actually it needs a good paediatric physiotherapy team alongside OTs um, and sometimes educational psychologists to help unpick those bits. So in your experience, are you seeing DCD patients being um, shoehorned into to, to, to hypermobility spectrum disorders and actually they could be better managed in, in a slightly different way or is it just to identify uh, them? Yeah, I th we, uh, we think know. there might be just a, a, a quite a big crossover. Right. Yeah. yeah, and so it's actually just a, like subgrouping. Might, yeah. yeah, and actually we just need to understand that better so that 
the way we approach um, the management then, um, we have to be more mindful about helping people to plan their activities. And as I said, the OTs, um, the OTs are very helpful um, in that area, as, as are the educational psychologists. Um, just going back to one of the points you made about in adolescence, their yeah. participation in sport at yeah. school, which is often driven from pain or, or clumsiness, and, and they and they back out. Or if there is a family yeah. history of that, and the, the parents aren't active as a result of uh, sim- the same condition, yeah. whether they're mimicking their their, their parent behaviour, it, it leaves a question in my mind that um, one of the things that uh, has been noted is is muscular weakness in uh, I think a study looked at uh, weakness in knee flexors uh, and extensors. Mm. As a, as a finding of hypermobility mm. um, patients. Yeah. And it made me wonder, is that is that a result of the condition or how much is it a result of the, the influences because uh, they're not participating in sports so they're, yeah. not, they're not training like their peers, uh, perhaps? Yeah. So I think the research is, 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 is likely to come out in the next six months. Probably we'll find some more research emerging. Um, certainly my perception is that hypermobile asymptomatic hypermobile people aren't necessarily weaker yeah. than their counterparts so um, I think the feeling here is it's actually it's, it's due to the you know the um, poor movement yeah. potentially patterning um, the less participation I don't think hypermobility equals weakness um, I think it's about um, but I think once they become symptomatic they can become very weak and they find it harder and slower to get back um, and that's very much an anecdotal point at the moment. Um, but I think they do strengthen. Um, so our job really is to get people back on track, give them hope, um, and find a way to begin that they feel confident to begin with. So with the adolescents, we want to keep them fit. If you're involved in sports groups, I think it's useful to screen for hypermobility, as you would screen for a lot of other things. Look to see that they've got the control that you would like them to have. Um, to, to ensure that their proprioception and their strength training is appropriate. Um, but if they've got, if you feel they're a little bit more on the lax side of it, you might want, you might, and it may come to light through work, you know, people like yourself, Dan, um, their training programs, it may be that actually um, their periodization needs to be slightly different um, because their tolerance might not be quite the same. But these, you know, this is the work of spe- specialists to do that. Uh, and and on that note, what what outcome measures could listeners use with okay. these patients? So, um, in terms of use of outcome measures, I think we need to think about the sort of broad areas that people might be working in. So, you might be working in a chronic pain setting, standard musculoskeletal outpatient department, or you might be working in a sporting setting. Um, but we use the international classification of functioning um, to help. Um, our assessment but also in our choice of outcome measures and in our management so thinking about the ICF we think about a line of impairments so you might want to use something like pain a pain of as scale you might use um, one of the fatigue scales so um, there are a number of fatigue questionnaires if that's a problem if that seems to be a particular problem but you could use a simple VAS for that we at the hard mobility u- unit have created um, a, a a coping scale. So, how well do you think you're coping? Um, and use that as a as a numerical view. And I think that's quite helpful. So, there are coping scales. Um, you want to think about balance. That might be single leg stance. It might be a, um, a Y balance test or a star excursion test for a higher functioning person. Um, 
We do include in our more chronic population, which is more a tertiary centre, the HADS, so the Hospital Anxiety and Depression Scale, those of you are working in, in that kind of setting, we find that helpful for a stratification. We tend to find it's more on the anxiety um, scales that uh, this group are affected by more, so I think that feeds back into your fear avoidance issue, yeah. so picking up the anxiety. From a functional perspective, again, you might want to use something like the patient-specific functional scale. It's not been validated specifically in this group, but it makes sense to use it. Equally, my might be another one that you could use. We use things like sit to stand. We do gait assessments. I do a six-minute walk test on uh, the children and adolescents that I see. If they're, you know, it, it certainly has a functional test. And then um, thinking about other types of questionnaires for quality of life, the PEDS QL that you can find from the Varney site uh, online, uh, the child assessment, uh, child health assessment questionnaire are both. Um, questionnaires that can be used, particularly like the PEDS-QL because it has um, domains for function, emotional health, social and impact on school. And for adults, probably something like the SF36 or um, SF12, the EDQ5L um, would be a broad one. And there is um, a new hypermobility um, um, outcome measure that's been developed by Shea Palmer's group down um, in Bristol. Um, now that's had its first steps in validation, it's quite a long um, questionnaire, but it's a hypermobility impact um, scale, so that's something else that listeners could, could, to, could look up, up on. Perfect. Oh, we'll, we'll put links to Ooh, those. One more, Sorry, just forgot. Um, <laughs> so I think you probably have some measure of strength, and I think we, yeah. we talked about an, another time, Dan, using things like a marometer. Yeah. Um, so some kind of dy- dynamometer would be quite helpful if, if people have... Uh, access to that but if not you need to do some kind of measure of strength or strength endurance it might even come to, with things like um you know sit to stand tests five sits to stands and you know time five sit to stands or a time sit to stand test but if not individual um strength testing yeah absolutely i can reinforce so um my work using that the handheld dynamometer is given yeah. a, a mark of where that patient is and the strength in the Gives uh, we can makes it easier to, to set goals and, yeah. and map it out over time. I can see that being a big advantage. Um, just rounding things up, could you take us through your thoughts of, of, of where you feel the, the, the direction of the, the research is heading? What's the, the, the future? Okay, all right. So, in terms of our future and research, I think we need to um, be looking at what the risk factors are for developing pain and problems because, as we know, hypermobility is quite a common trait <laughs> in the general population. So who is it that becomes symptomatic and why? So we'll be looking at some kind of looking at risk. Um, we'll be looking to um, evaluate the impact of interventions, um, particularly physiotherapy being a kind of a cornerstone. So we'll be looking at um, combined cognitive and um, educational approaches alongside potentially land-based, perhaps water-based exercise um, and um, there will be further work done on the sensitivity and specificity um, and on the diagnostic criteria so um, we'll need to be watching carefully what comes out from the geneticists and the rheumatologists on that front. Excellent, I look forward to uh, reading that. Uh, just before we finish um, anything you would like to uh, mention to the listeners before we go, I know you work with uh, several charities um, if you'd like to yeah. mention them. So I think for listeners at the moment, um, 
there is very good um, information available for um, practitioners from the Hypermobility Syndromes um, Association, so it's the HMSA, so if you Google that, you'll find that. I think we might be able to get the links across. Yeah. Um, the EDS UK is another uh, charity, uh, patient chari- patient-led charity. Um, both of those have got information standards um, set, so that means all the all the information up there um, has has been evidence-based and research-based, and are very helpful teams um, and well-monitored teams for your patient groups as well. Um, and just to also flag up um, POTS UK, so this is for the, those who have more the cardiac problems, um, postural orthostatic tachycardia. So POTS UK um, and STARS, which is a syncope group, also have very good information. So there's a lot of um, good information for clinicians and for um, for patient groups. Um, very welcome to, to be in touch with me at UCL um, or at the hypermobility unit. Um, as I said, always open to um, communications. We do run some masterclasses and um, hopefully we'll, we'll have some of those available for the um, MSCP in the future alongside other ones that we're running both nationally and internationally. Excellent. Just finally, uh, I'd like to thank you for your, your your time. Much appreciated for this MACP podcast, and I look forward to getting some feedback from it from our listeners. Yeah, thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure.